If you have a Bible, open to the book of Nehemiah. So we're in a, a short series through the summer in the book of Nehemiah. If you're not as familiar with the Bible, you're like, I don't even know where that is. Uh, that's fine. Uh, it's in the Old Testament, which is kind of the first half of your Bible. If you get to the book of Psalms, you've gone too far. Uh, if you're not sure at all where that is, the Bible is like most books, has a table of contents. So just find where Nehemiah is. Uh, and we're actually going to be doing two chapters uh, this morning, chapter two and three. So a lot to get through. So if you missed last week and you missed kind of the setup or the context of what's happening in Nehemiah, I would just encourage you to go back, listen to last week so you can kind of understand where we're at. We won't have time to go through all of that uh, this morning. And, and this morning's message might feel a little bit different if, you, if you've been here before and you're kind of used to the way that we preach on here. It might feel a little bit different because there's quite a few principles that we're going to draw from these two chapters in the story of Nehemiah. And the Bible's not just simply uh, like a self-help book. The Bible is not just simply like a book on good ideas on how to have a good life, but the Bible is written by the author of life, and God uh, has wisdom, which is the best way to live our life. And so we're going to pull from the scriptures, uh, from Nehemiah, uh, some principles on how to be a builder, both personally and corporately. So as a, as a community, as a church, uh, how, how to be a, a builder. So in chapter 1, what we saw in Nehemiah is that Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace, is in ruins. And Nehemiah is heartbroken over this reality. And Nehemiah takes that pain in chapter 1 and he focuses it into prayer. And in chapter 1, the, the most important thing that we drew out of the beginning of this book uh, was that prayer in the presence of God allowed Nehemiah to see past his problems and to what's possible with God. Let me say that a lot because there's a lot of P's and the people up front got spit on. Let me, let me say that again. Prayer in the presence of God allowed Nehemiah to see past his problems and into what's possible with God. Ultimately, what prayer did for Nehemiah, what it does for you and I, is it aligns our hearts with God's. It allowed, it allowed Nehemiah to align his heart with what God cared about. Allowed him a perspective from the way that how God sees things and sees what was happening in Nehemiah's world. And if chapter 1 was all about his prayer, then chapter 2 is about his resolve. Because we're going to see him quit his job as a, as a wine taster to become a wall builder. And he turned that prayer from chapter 1 into a plan. And that plan weren't turned into a sermon, and that sermon turned into action for the, for the nation. So purposes in chapter 2 become action in chapter 3. This, this creative God, which we, we saw last week in, in Genesis, that's who our God is, that's what he gave people. This creative God who's called us to be creative and called us to cultivate. Uh, and, 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 and that's what Nehemiah is going to step into here in chapter 2 and, and, and chapter 3. In, in our own lives where we see unhealthy or sinful structures and ways of being in our own lives and in our community, we, we do want to call those things out. We want to work to tear those things down, but what the world really needs and what the world needs to see in the church is compelling builders of what is good and what honors God. And we, as, as the people of God, are to be on the solution side of the problems that we see in this world for the fame and for the renown of Jesus. And in our text this morning, Nehemiah gets to a place where he realizes, listen, I can't rebuild the city of Jerusalem by myself, 
but I'm going to see what's in front of me, and I'm going to, I'm going to step into it and do my part. And what we're going to see is how Nehemiah honors this creator God by creating something good for the community. So let's pray and just ask God to help us with our text this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, as we just sang about, uh, we recognize and know that you are a rebuilder and a restorer God. And there are people all over this room, people who are watching, God, who that's their testimony, that you've, from the rubble, rebuilt, that you've revived, renewed, God, that you've resurrected from the dead, God, a new life because of your power and because of your grace and your mercy and your love. And so, God, we... uh, Uh, we're celebrating this morning just that reality of who you are and what you've done and what you can do. And God, right now, we want to take a look at what uh, you've given us in the book of Nehemiah. And God, we want you uh, to do a, a rebuilding work, a restorative work, a renewal work, a revival work in us. And God, that um, is not done by human effort or human power. It's done only by your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you move, I pray, with, with power? Would you do, God, what only you can do? And, and I just want to in, invite you, if you're listening right now, I just want to invite you just to pray that very simple prayer, that, God, would you, would you quiet my heart and quiet my mind? God, in humility, would I be able to just, just hear from you? And, God, would you, would you do a work in my heart? Would you do a work in my life? Would you just pray that right now? God, I want to ask the very same thing for myself. God, that I would just be quieted in your love. God, that I would be controlled and covered by your spirit. And God, that in this time, Jesus, that you um, would just be more and more beautiful to us. I ask these things in your powerful name. Amen. So like I said, we spent all of chapter 1 with Nehemiah where he was praying And as he's praying, he's gaining perspective, and he starts to really kind of see himself as part of the solution, which is how he ends chapter 1. He ends with the phrase, I am the cupbearer to the king. Now, the the cupbearer, we said this last week, was the one who would select the wine and serve the wine to the king, but first they would be the first one to taste it to see if it was poison, because if it was poison, it would kill the cupbearer and not kill the king. So to be the cupbearer in the presence of a king meant that you were entrusted with quite a and it meant that you were trustworthy. And even though Nehemiah has a very important role in the kingdom, Nehemiah lacked positional authority. But he understood that God had placed him in a particular place where he had uh, personal influence. And he understands, maybe I'm in the circles that I'm in so that I can be part of the solution uh, for the needs of my day. And I don't know, we, we talked about this last week, so we won't go into this too much, but I don't know if you ever think about that and just where God has placed you. Uh, we hold to a doctrine of the, the sovereignty of God here where we don't think there's anything that's uh, an accident. We, we think that God has placed you where he's placed you for his particular purpose. And Nehemiah understands that. There's just one problem here. 
that if Nehemiah is going to get involved in the rebuilding of the city, he's going to have to talk to King Artaxerxes and somehow get him to reverse a command that he gave in Ezra chapter 4 to stop the rebuilding of this rebel city. And Nehemiah realizes, he's like, okay, if I'm going to get involved, I have to talk to this king about reversing his decision and this is a very dangerous proposition because there aren't a whole lot of checks and balances in this government in Persia. It's one man and one man who has all the power, which is sets up for kind of a bad scene. And in fact, an earlier king, history would tell us, had a noble that came to him. And this noble was asking uh, if he could pay to have his son released from the military conscription that was placed on young men. He said, can I pay? That way what my son won't have to go into the army. And so the Persian king at the time at the time said, yeah, of course, you can do that. So the man pays. And then the Persian king has his son sawn in two. And then the pieces of his body placed on either side of the road. And then the army marched in between those pieces of the body. So Nehemiah is not really dealing with a rational kind of solid decision-making person here. But Nehemiah realizes, okay, I have to go to this king and I have to not only ask him for a leave of absence uh, so that I can leave and go be- rebuild a rebel city, specifically its primary defenses against an enemy. And by the way, I'm also going to need him to fund the whole project. So this is why Nehemiah spends a whole chapter praying, Lord, help me. <laughs> but Nehemiah spends time in the presence of the king, and that gives him power and boldness in the presence of earthly kings. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. The month of Nisan meant that that's been about four months since Nehemiah first heard the, the word about Jerusalem and what's going on. So he's been praying and he's been fasting and he's been going before God for four months with this. And he tells us that he's not been sad in the presence of the king before. It's an important piece of information because to be sad in the presence of the king could mean, uh, and it could be read by the king as, as resent. And if you look resentful, it could mean that you don't like the king and you don't trust him. And it might mean that you're a traitor uh, and it might mean that you're a threat. So if you're not happy in front of the king, uh, he'll cut your head off. But here in this moment, Nehemiah, he can't hide his sadness any longer. And so the king notices in verse 2, he says, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. The king's like, what's going on with your face, man? What's wrong with you? You're not sick. You're sad. Why why are you sad? The king said, but I said to the king in verse 3, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have not been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah says, King, have I told you how great you look lately, man? You losing weight? The king lived forever. He's not not sucking up here. What he's doing is something that's actually very strategic. He's letting the king know that he's invested in his success. He's not a traitor. He's not trying to undermine him. Nehemiah lets his leader know, I'm not defying you. I'm not opposing you. I am actually invested in your success. And listen to this. When your leader knows that you are invested in their success, 
they will be more prone to be invested in your success. He wants the king to know, look, king, I'm invested in you so that the king will be invested in him. And Nehemiah says, the place of my father's grave is in ruins. Now notice, Nehemiah doesn't use the word wall, right? And if you remember in chapter one, the whole reason his heart is broken is because the wall's broken down. But he doesn't bring up the wall because to the king, it might sound like a challenge to the king. And he doesn't lie. Nehemiah is very strategic here. Because graves of nobility were often hosed, housed within the walls of the city. But he, he talks about the ancestors' graves because he's appealing to a shared value. He understands that they have something in common. In the ancient Near East, the care of the burial of the dead was extremely important. You, you wanted to honor the resting place of your ancestors. And the gates were where the elderly in the city would, would sit. That's where they would share their wisdom before they died. So you would go to the elders who would sit at the gates and you would sit at their feet and you would learn from them. The scripture talks about this. You go to the elder at the gate. And so there's a high, high cultural value on both honoring the elderly and also honoring the dead. And Nehemiah knows this and he says, look, I'm sad because the graves and the gates are in ruins. And so in this moment, Nehemiah is so, so wise because the king's not threatened. He's actually drawn into this opportunity. It's an opportunity to make him the hero, to make this right. Nehemiah is setting up the king to be the hero in this, in this moment. Tom Schrader, who was the founding pastor of this church, uh, had a phrase uh, that was attributed to him. It was, it was this, it's amazing what can get done when you don't care who gets the credit. Uh, Tom is with the Lord right now, and I, I don't think that phrase is original with Tom, but Tom was a great leader and said a lot of great things, and when you're a great man and a great leader, then people just say you said all kinds of things, and that's okay, because uh, he did say a lot of great things. But more than just say that, what Tom did is he uh, started a leadership philosophy here. He started a culture here of uh, it's amazing what can get done when you don't care who gets the credit. And it's the kind of philosophy that I want to lead out of here. Uh, that's how I want my leadership to be shaped. And what Nehemiah is doing here is understanding that principle and working out of that principle. He invites the king into this opportunity. He says, look... My father's grave and the, and the gates are in, in ruin. And so with these shared values, he invites the king to engage. There's a pastor and author named Tim Keller in New York City. And he once talked about the challenges of getting people on different sides of the political spectrum in his church to come together and work together, if you can imagine such a thing. And specifically, uh, years ago, addressing uh, the issue of poverty in the inner city and urban areas like New York City, many people don't have access to certain resources. And he says, whenever I'd bring up the issue, it would just get so polarized. He said people on one side would say, well, the problem is systemic injustice. People on the other side would say, no, the problem is personal responsibility. The responsibility begins in the home. But he said most of the time it would just devolve into an argument and nothing would get done. So he had this idea. He said, what if we could start the conversation with shared values? Regardless of however you thought the problem began, what if we started by saying, let's look at the children in the city? 
Can, can we all admit it's a difficult situation for the, for the kids and it's not the kids' fault? So however we got here, can we agree that we all want a present reality where children are provided for and encouraged and educated and set up with opportunity for a beautiful future? And as we envision and agree on that future, maybe we can reveal some changes and we can make sure that our kids have a chance to win. And he says, as you draw on common shared values, maybe you can take people from different camps and bring them back to the table. We can all be invested in seeing this next generation win. So Nehemiah starts out with shared values and the king listens. And the king in verse four says, what is it that you want? When you get in the presence of a leader and they are listening, if they are a good leader, they will ask this question, what do you want? So just kind of tuck this away. When you, when you want something, you get in the presence of the leader. When, 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 you, when they are listening to you, they're going to ask, well, what is it that you want? A good leader doesn't just want to hear about the problem. They want to know what the solution is. The, the, the people that I want to work with are not just the people who can identify a problem, who can critique Critiquing is important, but it's not necessarily a unique skill. Most anybody can identify a problem. Most anybody can point out something that's wrong. Oh, that's broke. That doesn't look good. That's not right. Right? Most people can do that. But very few people can actually bring a solution. A good leader wants people around them who are on the solution side of problems. Don't just bring the problem. Bring the proposal. Tell me what's wrong, but then tell me the plan. It, it, it was amazing for me before I had to start kind of leading things on my own, how easy it was for me to critique other works, other ministries. And then I had to start kind of leading things on my own. I was like, oh, that's a lot easier to critique something than to lead something. Nehemiah, once again, as the, as the king says, what do you want? He does what we should all do. And in situations like this, and quite frankly, all situations, he prays. You're going to see this as a theme all through Nehemiah. He prays. It says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, he's already prayed for months, but he has this moment here. It doesn't stop him from praying right here. And he says, he says the same thing about God. You are God in heaven. Again, when you acknowledge who God is and where he's at and, and the power that he has and what he's over, it gives you perspective on your present reality. And that's what Nehemiah does here. He's a man of action, but he's a man of prayer. And his private prayer has made him ready for this moment right here. There's one pastor who said it this way. I love it. He says, Nehemiah accomplishes God's purposes because he lingered in God's presence. Presence. Nehemiah accomplishes God's purposes because he lingered in God's presence. And he understands here, Nehemiah does, that prayer does not remove the need for action. Prayer refines our action. Prayer brings clarity to what actions to take. Prayer is not the enemy of action, it's the guide to action. And here for Nehemiah, his prayer has informed his plan and it inspires Nehemiah to use this platform with the king. Look at verse 5. I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. There's a little phrase in there I want you to key in on. Found favor, meaning if I've been a good employee. If I've been a good employee... Let me direct policy. 
Nehemiah bases the ask that he has on his reputation and track record with the king. His integrity has established his influence. Just as a, as a, as a point here, because of the favor that he has, because of the way that he has worked in the past, he now has opportunity. So as a point to consider, if there's any small business owners in here, you're probably taking notes, I hope, right now. No one wants to follow the guy who shows up late to work every day. No one wants to listen to the woman who's constantly putting in minimum effort or cutting corners. It's his, it's his integrity that's established his influence. If you have integrity with what God has given you, you'll build up influence with, what, with the things that are above you. The biblical principle, if you're faithful with little, God will give you an opportunity to be faithful with much. Nehemiah says, if I found favor in your sight, send me to Judah. Send me to the city of my personal grave, to my father's graves. He takes personal responsibility. He says, the gates are destroyed. Let me be a part of the solution. This is what Jesus calls his followers to, a repentance of heart first. It's a call to forgiveness and grace and mercy found in the finished work of Jesus and a call to repentance of activity, not as a, as a means of earning favor from God, but because we already have it. So church, let's be a Nehemiah heart. Let's, have, let's be a church with a Nehemiah heart where we ask, how can we lean in? How can we meet the needs in our, in our city, in our state, in our world? How can we rise up? How can we build? How can we take our place? So then the king answers, well, how long will your journey take? How will, how, when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Verse 7, I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request, so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent officers and our army officers and cavalry with me. Okay, the king has questions, normal questions, like how long is this going to take? But Nehemiah has answers. This is the key. He's thought through it. He knows the details. He even knows who you're supposed to write the letter to, that cat Asaph, make sure he gets the letter. Nehemiah has been praying for four months, but he's also been planning because he understands being a great wine taster doesn't necessarily make you a great wall builder. So as he's been, as he's been praying, he's also been, been learning. He's been educating himself. He's watching YouTube on how to build a wall. He's gaining knowledge so that when the opportunity presents itself, he's ready. He's a person of prayer, but he's also a man of, with a plan. And if, and if we take that as a church, there's one more thing I think it requires from us too. Yes, we want to be a people of prayer. And yes, we may need to make wise plans. But as a church family, it also requires patience. Because as needs arise in our world and as the world looks to the church to respond, we have people in different places and experiences. And it requires a certain posture of humility and listening and learning and loving each other. And we continue to preach this gospel of grace of how Jesus alone renovates hearts. And we seek ways that we can make Jesus known through our good works, through loving our neighbors. 
There's a pastor, John Piper, he says that there's two kinds of Christians. There's adrenal Christians and coronary Christians. And he says adrenal Christians spike at every kind of cause or issue or problem, both personally and corporately that they see in the world. And they're, they're, they're constantly spiking every time that something arises in their own life or in the world. And he says, but then there's coronary Christians. And coronary Christians have a consistent and constant heartbeat for what God, my heart doesn't beat this slow, but <laughs> I can't even remember how my heart beats now, but they have a consistent and constant heartbeat for what God's heart beats for, and they're constant and consistent in their confession, and then their repentance, and then their prayer, and then their learning, and then their listening, and then their loving, and then their spreading peace, and then their joy, and then their giving thanks. And so when these things do arrive personally, when these things do arrive in the world, they have just been a people with a consistent heart beating for what God's heart has been. We need to be coronary Christians. So the king gives him permission. In verse 11, he goes, but he goes in, he goes in secret. He goes quiet. He goes in the night because he's still kind of processing. But then in verse 17, he comes back to the people and he says to them in verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. And in verse 18, he gives them this theological reality. He's like, I told them about the gracious hand of God on me and what the king had said. And they said, okay, let's start rebuilding. God is with me. The king has given me favor. Let's build. We can, we can look at our situation, we can look at where we are in life, we can look at ourselves, we can look at our deficiencies and be quickly and most likely all the time overwhelmed. But what Nehemiah says, no, look upward, see that God is with us, see that God is for us. And when we do that, that's when the people around say, let's rise up, let's build. And, then, and that's in chapter 3, Nehemiah mobilizes a community. So we're going to work really fast through chapter 3 here. Got just a few principles to lay out for you. And Nehemiah understands that old adage, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And in, in chapter 3, he's going to give us essential characteristics of what a constructive community looks like. In verse 1, it says this, uh, Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananel. So who starts the work? Elisha and his brothers. Well, who are they? They're the priests. The first kind of point is this. It's the priests who lead the way. It's the priests who lead the way. If you want to have a constructive community, it's the priests who lead the way. The representatives God, of God that go first. The job of the priests is to facilitate the connection between God and his people. God told the nations, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be an entire kingdom that shows other nations of what it is to walk with me and to be with me. In Christianity, we talk about the priesthood of all believers, how we exist to live with God and to show others what a life with God 
God looks like. And so when he says the priests go first, he's not necessarily talking about vocational pastors like me. He's talking about the people of God, people who have been redeemed by the grace of God. And so when we see a community that's struggling or a society that's failing, it's the people of God who lead the way. It's the priests who go first in the rebuilding and the renewal of a hurting community. Should governments be involved in letting communities rise? Sure. Should neighbors take responsibility for their neighborhood? Absolutely. But the impulse of a Christian in society should be to be a part of the solution. We serve a creator God, so let's be constructive to help our community be all that it should be for the good of our neighbor unto the fame of Jesus. As priests, let's lead the way. And it's all throughout the scripture. This is not just something kind of brand new. This is not just something that's trendy. If you look at Joseph, he's a blessing to Egypt. If you look at Daniel, he contributes to Babylon. Jeremiah says, seek the shalom of the city. Seek the wholeness or the wellness, the fullness of the city. Priests lead the way. The second point, spiritual renewal precedes societal renewal. Spiritual renewal precedes societal renewal. When they start building, they build the sheep gate. The sheep gate was the gate that the sheep would come in and out of. Actually, they would come in. They didn't go out because they got killed. Um, the sheep would come in and, and it would lead to the temple. The temple was at the heart of the city. So they start there. They start at the, at the heart of the city. This is where when that sacrificial system, the sheep would come in, the sheep would be slaughtered, they'd be offered as a sacrifice, and then the meat would be cooked and the people would eat together. The people of God and the, and the, and the foreigner and the stranger, they would come together and they would eat a meal. And it was a picture of what Jesus would ultimately accomplish. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was a symbol that under my sacrifice, we're family, we're together, we eat as one. And what this picture shows is that if we could renovate a heart of worship first, then a lifestyle of worship will flow out of it. Again, Tom would always say, changed lives, changed lives. The believer is meant to lead the way and being a change agent for good, but it starts with God changing us first. Personal revival comes before societal revival. Does God want you to be a better neighbor or a friend to your community? Absolutely. But he wants, you to, he wants Jesus to change your heart first. The next point, true spirituality always works itself out in the context of community. True spirituality always works itself out in the context of community. Verse 2, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section... And Zakar, the son of Emery, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Mushalim, son of Berechah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. Now, here's what I want you to get out of that. Listen to the rep repetition that we're seeing there. Next to him. Next to him, next to him. How does a community rise? How does a church like ours flourish? 
working shoulder to shoulder, side by side. Spirituality is a team sport. The church is not to be built on the sacrifice of a few, but on the contributions of many. And in a world that drifts more and more towards isolation, especially what we saw over the past 18 months where people are like, well, I can sit on my couch. I don't have to go to the sanctuary. God's like, that's not really how I designed it. I'm thankful for that technology and something that made us be able to kind of be together in that. But this is way better. This is how God designed for us to be together. Let's work together side by side, building together. And it's not just true for us as a church. It's true for you as an individual. But then we need this fourth point. Humility sets the groundwork for unity. Humility sets the groundwork for unity. Listen to this, verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisors. This is a horrible verse. Because listen, if you are too proud to serve, you're too proud. The, the awful thing here is that you have these people here who their arrogance and their pride is going to keep them from making a difference. And you don't want that to be you. You don't want to be the person who's like, well, somebody else is going to do that. Or if they don't do it my way, well, then I'm not going to participate. Or someone else will fund this. I'll just come and consume it and I'll just come and sit and enjoy it. It's not meant to be that way. We're all meant to play a part, everyone, but it's humility that sets the ground of unity. And if you let your arrogance or you let your stubbornness or your self-centeredness rule you and you can't get over yourself to serve others, to listen and to learn and to love, then your story is going to be like these nobles. Think about this. For all of eternity, locked into the scriptures, the reputation of these guys is that they would not put their shoulder to the work. They would not serve. Don't let that be your legacy. We have a pastor on staff here. His name's Neil Pitchell. He leads this amazing community called Salts, our senior adult community. Neil is by far one of the best pastors we have. He's one of the most brilliant leaders we have. If Neil had, yeah, he's not in here so I can say all this stuff because um, he also handles our finances, so I'm not making a play at Neil. Um, if Neil had worked in the marketplace, he would have made exponentially more money than he has working in the, in the church world. Neil is one of the biggest cheerleaders that we have to young leaders here. Nobody encourages our young leaders. No one encourages uh, the, the next generation. No one encourages the next work, the next idea, the next thing we have more than Neil does. And he leads a community of, 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 the, the, of older people. I didn't want to say that. But, he, but he, leads, he leads that community who, quite frankly, have funded quite a bit of what happens around here. And I know everything we do is not their cup of tea. But he leads them in the way of service and he leads them in the way of humility. And they cheer us on. I'm extremely thankful for him. And he illustrates... He illustrates a really important principle here. If you're too proud to stoop and put your shoulders underneath the work and serve the Lord, you're too proud. Everyone can play a part in what God's doing in this church, but you've got to be humble, humble and willing. And that's the last point here, that church is an all-skate. Church is an all-skate. I had to do quite a bit to impress my uh, wife when we were dating, uh, and so I'd take her to the skating rink a lot because I could do a few moves. Not a lot, but I could do, like, a, f a few. I could, like, shoot the moon. Anybody know? Nobody? Okay. I, not anymore. I think I just hurt myself, but I could. Well, I could. But there's always a moment when you go to a skate party where they say, all right, here comes the all-skate. That means everybody is out there. 
churches in Allscate. You see in the rest of this chapter, and I'm not going to read all of it because I've already butchered enough pronunciation, but you're going to see most of them are building together as families. In fact, in verse 12, I really like this because I've got girls. It says that Shalom is working with his daughters, hashtag girl dad. If you have a family, let your building start there. Look at verse, look at verse 8, though. Uzziel, son of Hananiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next session, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the, the broad wall. So you've got these families who are all building together, but then there's also these people who are grouped together by trade or interest, so they kind of form a community uh, together based on their common interest or based on their, even their common industry. When my wife and I moved here in, in 2007, we moved away from all of our family. All of our family lives on the East Coast, predominantly the South. Southeast. Uh, and so when we moved out here, we're, we were really all alone. But God's created this community. There's people kind of around us. It's like family that we got to choose, which has been pretty cool. Uh, and that's what's happening here. There's a community that they, that they choose together. And I love that it says that even the perfumers are getting in on the building. I don't know how hard worker, uh, wall builder, construction worker, perfumers are, but let's just say that they're, they're, they're better than you think, right? So we believe that the Bible teaches that all the vocations are calling of God on your life for the fame of Jesus. There are no secular vocations and sacred vocations. They're all for Jesus and they're all sacred. So my job as a pastor is not any more sacred than your job as a teacher or, or if you're in real estate or a, or a doctor or, or if you're a, 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 a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad. My job's not any more sacred than that. They're all sacred. The perfumers have an important role in society and in God's economy, but at the moment, that's not the most pressing need in the community. So I love really just the heart of the perfumers here. They're like, listen, sometimes perfumers got to build walls, and that's what we're going to do. Sometimes the needs of the community will perfectly fit your particular and your unique gifts, but sometimes we just need to pitch in and, and, and work wherever there is a need to build. Uh, the, some of the Sunday school teachers here are some of the top commercial real estate people in, in the state, and they work and teach Sunday school. I have, I have a friend who planted a church uh, in, a, in a really poor town in Florida, and he went in and he talked to the city council, and he said, I want to plant a church. And they're like, well, that's great. We really don't need a church. And he said, well, what do you guys need? And he said, well, we don't have a grocery store. We've got this strip mall that's abandoned. We haven't had a grocery store in years. So this guy's a church player. He's a pastor. He doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. But he goes out and he gets all the connections and he gets a grocery store to come into this community and be an anchor. And then, then, then they said, well, we actually don't have any place for the kids to hang out after school. There's no after school programs. Our kids are just kind of running around spray painting things. He said, okay, fine. We're going to start, a, we're gonna start an after school program in this strip mall. And so in this strip mall, they, he, he went out and he, and he found uh, businesses and he found organizations and he found things that the community needed. And he's like, and guess what? We'll just, we'll have a church that meets here on Saturday nights and I'll be part of the thing. But first of all, I want to help to meet the needs of the community. If it means I got to go find a grocery store to move here, that's what I'm going to do. I know a, a real estate guy in, in Denver, every time he sells a home to someone, he hires a food truck and he throws a, a, like a block party there because he's like, my neighbors, these people, my clients, they've moved into a place and they don't have community. They don't know anybody who lives in this neighborhood. So every time he sells a home, he, he buys a food truck and he's like, okay, come on in. We're going to have a party and we're going to create community. 
And some of you, you know what you're gifted in and some of you don't. But what I love about these passages, these people just start right where they are. If you look at verse 23, they just start right next to their house. And even if it doesn't fit your skill set exactly, anyone can be a part of a constructive community if you're willing to be humble. There's a unity in their intention. There's a diversity of gifts. And and God loves a diverse church, all different people and different backgrounds, different stories, unified in a desire for God's fame and glory. That's what Jesus purchased in Ephesians 2. All different kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, all different nations, former enemies, people who were hostile towards each other, now knit together in love by the grace of Jesus, built together and bound together to build. And we're not all the the same, but in his prayer, Jesus in John 17 is that would be one, not uniformity, but unity. And Jesus lays this foundation and he invites us into it. And as we love each other and forgive each other and heal with one another and work shoulder to shoulder together, goldsmiths and perfumers and rulers and the homeless, all together building our church and our community, our city, seeing needs and meeting needs, stepping in humbly by the grace of God, seeing him do a work in our church and our community and our world. That's the design that God has for his church. I want to end real quick with one thing. It's in verse 14. It says this, The dung gate was repaired by Malkajah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars and plates. Okay, the dung gate. What is that? Well, dung is poop. <laughs> I don't know if you can say that, but I just did. And there's a dung gate because... That's got to go somewhere. And there's a gate that it has to go through and somebody's got to build it. Not as cool as the sheep gate. In a few verses, uh, somebody gets to build the house of mighty men called the house of heroes. Super cool. Way cooler than the dung gate. But somebody's got to build the dung gate. Here's the thing, this is going to be kind of a spoiler alert if you don't know the story, but in chapter 12, the gate or the wall actually gets rebuilt and they throw a huge party and there's these different worship bands and Nehemiah says, all right, I want one of those worship bands to go over the dung gate. And if you are Malkajah during this huge party that they throw at the end, you're there and you're like, we helped to build the dung gate. <laughs> and you know what? It had to get done because we had to get the dung out so God could get the praises in. What was refuse went out so what was restoring could come in. When we go low, God brings revival to a community. And, and God's not asking us to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. Because Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, was born in an animal's feeding trough in the middle of this backwater town in the middle of nowhere. He was homeless. He owned one pair of clothes. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And when he preached and did ministry, he was ridiculed and reviled. And when he was supposed to be lifted up as a king... He was hung on a cross. The king of kings humbled himself to be a servant 
and served us to the point of death. And out of that garbage dump, that place of death, he purchased life for those who would believe. And as we come humble and as we come broken, we experience the resurrection that comes out of the rubble. Church, Christ is building a community of his forgiven ones, the healed sons and daughters, the redeemed and reconciled children of God for us to do good works that he has prepared for us before the foundation of the world, not to earn his favor, but because he lavished favor on us while we were enemies deserving wrath. And if God is healing his church, let us be a people who bring that gospel of healing to the world around us. Let us be the bright, shiny city on a hill and be a place of celebrating the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Let us be a part of the solution of what our city needs most for God's glory and fame and praise for the love of our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, I thank you um, for what we can draw from your word. I, I am could just constantly overwhelmed and uh, ashamedly surprised at how relevant um, and, and practical and, and personal your word is. And I just, I thank you for that, God. I thank you for the gift of your word. God, I thank you most of all for the gift of your son, Jesus, who, yes, there are, there, are, there are things to be done in this world, God, but there was a more important work to be done in us. And it's not a work that we could put our hands to. It's not a work that we could shoulder up against. It, it's not something that we could fix on our own. But God, you and your grace and by your mercy and because of your overwhelming love for us, God, stepped into our mess, stepped into our rubble, stepped into the destruction of our life and brought renewal and brought life and brought resurrection. So Jesus, we praise you. And Jesus, we thank you. And Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.